You're listening to the Tennis.com podcast, and here's your host, Ed McGrogan. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Tennis.com podcast. Ed McGrogan here, catching up with Steve Tigner. Uh, we know you love looking forward to his reviews and previews each week, so we thought we would combine that a little on this podcast, seeing as there's really no room to breathe the way that the calendar this year in particular happened with London and Paris. Um, you actually don't even get a single day in between the two events. Uh, that does change next year, and I think perhaps probably for good. I, I don't know. If, I'm not sure if the, the calendar was caught in a collision between a couple of years of adjustments, but it's pretty – it's interesting, especially because all the players that were at the end of Paris, you know, are also in London too. And and I I think it was kind of unfortunate because you're not even you're kind of pushing Paris's happenings really to the back burner already with London, you know, as we record this already a match in. It, did you feel any way about that? Just of how you know busy it is right yeah, now. Yeah, I think um, a couple of years ago they they really wanted to shorten the calendar at all costs, so they so they got rid of whatever weeks they could and one of those weeks was the week between Paris and London and then last year it really um, showed that 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 wasn't going to work all the top players lost early in Paris David Ferrer won his first Masters you know not to take away anything from him but the other guys were looking forward to to London so they so they've added a week back next year starting next year and that hopefully will be permanent because I mean the one good thing about about this year is that all the top players still you know went far in the in the Paris tournament they didn't just um, you know head straight for London essentially you know Djokovic won the tournament Nadal made the semis Federer made the semis so Paris it looks like an afterthought at the moment but it was still at least they had top players who who made it deep in that you know thinking about that just the fall in general the the whole Asian swing and European indoor, you think of kind of all the tournaments talked about them, even the 500s like Valencia and Basel and of course Shanghai and Bercy, you know, it was, it, the way it played out was almost just like a slam typically does nowadays. It's just, you know, the top seed, the chalk was kind of there from till the end and it, it's, um, you know, the whole season really just not, this whole part of the season, it, it's definitely not getting that afterthought treatment that I think a lot of people, including myself, I think worried about for so long because of how just how long the season is. But these players, you know, they really have kind of kept it going full throttle up until the end point. Yeah, I think it has to do with making it just a little shorter. It seems to be, you know, it's been lucky. Rafa's been there this year for the first time in a while and everybody's healthy. But I think part of the reason that everybody's, seems to still be into it is they they can see the finish line a little earlier than than they used to used to go into the second week in December now it's over by the third week in November to me after the US Open that makes it look significantly you know you, you know as a top player you can still see yourself you know going full out through that amount of time maybe maybe they didn't feel that way in the past yeah i mean as little as 2 years ago like you said if it's more symbolically in a way the Davis Cup ended I think on like December 2nd or something and technically the following year season started on like December 31st so if you back then if you really think about it there was literally not a single month where it was tennis free whatsoever and you know the world tour finals was going on from a pure U.S. perspective during Thanksgiving week and all that so it's it's a nice thing they're doing I think they're obviously seeing the WTA's lead in a little of this, you know, they've really cut back and, you know, their season's already a full week 
through with. And I think that's gotten a lot of positive press from everyone involved. So um, I also think it's helped, you know, Rafa and Serena have typically in the past sort of shut down after the U.S. Open or haven't really done that well. And um, this, you know, this year they've, Serena won out and Rafa's been competitive at least all the way through. Yeah. So let's take like a last look at Paris and then first look at London a little bit uh, before the event gets too too deep into this playing already. So Paris was an event, even though all the top eights um, made it to the last eight, it was still an event kind of high on surprises. And yeah, I think you start realistically with even with Federer beating Del Potro after Del Potro defeated him earlier in Basel. This has obviously been what is pretty well seen as a, as a, a strong year for Del Potro despite some of his, uh, you know, at the slams basically that's really kind of his only fault. Yeah, you had Ferrer beating Rafa, of course. That was a huge, you know, surprise for so many reasons. And then also really Djokovic rallying from early deficits both against Federer and Ferrer to get through those. So it was it was event high on drama, and uh, even with you know the, even with Djokovic still winning in the end, you know which of those which of those happenings I guess sticks out to you the most. I guess as far as a surprise go, you look at Ferrer beating Nadal in straight sets. Rafa had beaten him nine straight times. He has a record somewhere around twenty-one and five against him. Um, that I think part of that is Ferrer played more aggressively and played well he had a little less to lose and I think with Rafa it shows again in a way that one of the problems he has at the end of the year is he wins not necessarily on just destroying people but just being a little better mentally a little better mental edge wins a lot of close sets and that way through the course of the year and at the Grand Slams but if he's a little less motivated which he's bound to be since these aren't Grand Slams and there's not leading to any Grand Slam you know he can I think it's it's easy for him to slip just a little bit and lose a match like that when he wins a lot on just sort of mental motivation. Yeah, because so many of these matches with amongst these guys do come down to really infinitesimally small details, and, and it's a good point there. I mean, speak, keeping on Rafa, I mean, you would think, though, of course, that going into London, which has been well talked about, it's the only really significant event that he hasn't won. I mean, I would I would assume he has this is a pretty especially to cap off this particular season he had that London has to be looming large for him as an event he would really like to go out on. Uh-huh. Yeah, I think he said today in his interview which is a little strange he says he's not being number 1 isn't a big goal for him. I think he's going back to how he felt earlier in the year and sort of lowering the expectations for himself again. He has to win two matches um to be number 1 and I'm sure he he wants to do that at least. As far as winning the tournament, I think he he um, he now sees Djokovic as as the favorite in the tournament. Maybe that helps him, you know, even though he is number one, to think of himself as clearly not being the favorite to win this event. I think it'll be tough for him just based on his form and Djokovic's form since the U.S. Open. You, you know, you have to go with with Djokovic over Rafa, but this is probably going to be Nadal's. It might maybe be his best chance ever to win this tournament. Yeah, and actually I'm going to touch on Federer just right now and, let, and kind of leave Djokovic too because I think he's just as interesting of you know how how significant his uh, play has been since the Open, since his you know his latest loss to Rafa there. For Federer beating, you know, being Del Potro, what, what I was thinking about with 
that match and really as it relates to London is that Federer, and we'll get into the groups in London in just a minute, is that you know Federer he can afford to lose a match in London, and he you know he's obviously won this tournament six times, and for when we talk about this this immense group of Del Potro, Djokovic, and Federer, um, you know with that little bit of breathing room that Federer has, and as has been documented, he he you know he's it hasn't been the, obviously the consistent Roger of of the olden days, but. He has still proven against all of the, pretty much everybody still, um, you know, that he has, of course, that match in him, you know, against any of these guys. So I think how Roger plays in London is, is of course, going to get great attention, but it's, you know, I don't think it's, with that format and the time off between the two days, it's not going to be like the WTA where players are being asked to play in some cases three days in a row round robin. You know, Roger's play there would not, terribly surprised me if he kind of knocks on the door and really ends this year on a really strong note for him there. Yeah, it's amazing what a difference a couple of weeks make. Huh? The, at the by at the end of the US Open, people were really you know, even people who weren't typical Federer doubters were I think had to say that he looked like he was in trouble. And now I think especially, you know, he gets to the final in Basel, which with some struggles. And then in Paris, really the um match where he played Del Potro Ribi Kohlschreiber and then Del Potro. Those were two matches where he really started to look like himself again, move like himself again. Um, and he beats Del Potro. And now, you know, I think now everybody feels like, okay, we've seen, now we see that Federer can play well again. So it, there's not this drastic sense of him in decline. And now he, he's even talking about how, in London, he's talking about how matches are really still on his racket. You know, he still thinks of himself as when he's playing well, he can beat anybody. So. So he's obviously, you know, his his attitude is obviously <laughs> turned around again. Yeah. Um, I'll give the last word about Djokovic, like we said, where who has had the last word this whole fall season. You know, it. I don't know if it's a surprise or not that he's gone through this totally unbeaten since Flushing Meadows. But you know, what do you what do you see from Djokovic, especially given that? Yeah, he lost that number one ranking, and it it always does seem to appear though that thinking back the past couple of years is that when the, when some of these players lose that number one, it almost seems just to invigorate them a little more, just to you know sort of retain it in a way, and uh, and and that's what we've seen from Rafa, of course, a couple of times in the past, and and Djokovic looks like yeah he has his sights set on kind of next year already and and making a stand now. Yeah, I'm really not surprised. For some reason, I when I saw Djokovic play in Beijing, I felt like he's got a good chance to, to run the table at the end of the year just from the way he was playing. You know, he, it wasn't as if he was he was just suddenly a different player, but you could tell his attitude was... We talk about the little mental dynamics that maybe Rafa's not quite as motivated for this time of year. Djokovic seems, since he lost number one, to be a little freer in the way he's playing. A little bit... He's able to be... To go get something, to be more aggressive and rather than to having always to defend being number one. I think that's a natural tendency for a lot of players you know that the struggle to be number one because there's nothing there's nothing to gain it's all in defense in a way and now Djokovic has that is free of that now he can go after being number one again and I think he I think he feels like he really does he really should be number one he's really made a serious effort to get to that point at the end of the year even though it's almost seemed impossible after the U.S. Open and it still is right almost impossible so I think that you know that little mental dynamic, I think you ha- that's why, you know, I think that's has helped Djokovic, obviously, and that's why he has to be the favorite at this tournament. Yeah. He, um, I think you make a good call about 
despite how well Rafa plays, I think it's it's irregard it's it's not it's irregardless of Djokovic that who I think b- still believes that you know clearly on his best day he should be beating anyone, including Nadal there. So um, let me just go back one second for with Federer. It's interesting that in two two years ago he used this this time of year to to get back eventually get back to being number one in 2012. This year maybe you can see that that he has a limit in that he he was unable to beat Djokovic even even playing well again, winning the first set against Djokovic, he still lost the last two sets, 6-3, 6-2. So maybe you can see that even at his best in the coming year, there's going to be a limit to how f- to where he can get. Mm-hmm. That's something that's seemed possible after watching that Djokovic match in yep. the semis. Yeah, we've, by this point, we've already actually tackled probably half the field here for London. So looking at a little bit, the one match that's in the books as of this recording is Wawrinka defeated Burdich in Group A. The Group A is Wawrinka, Burdich, Rafa, David, Ferrer. And every year at the at the season-ending championships, there does seem to be a... Um, I think about like when Blake made the finals of this, uh, Ferrer also back when it was his first really breakthrough year. This tournament does seem to reward players like this who... who um, you have had such strong years and are not necessarily you know the the ones we always talk about but Vavrinka getting off to a 1-0 start here and and you know doesn't have he's not obviously in this group B of Federer Djokovic Gasquet Del Potro you know, it would be a uh, I think a pretty fitting end for for Vavrinka as well who started the year so strong in Australia with nearly beating Djokovic and kind of just built off that. He really just kind of kept ascending and didn't let that bog him down as it has in years past there. Yeah, you can see him getting to the semis of this. Um, you can see it setting up pretty well for him. He beats Burdich, who he seems to own now. He will probably lose to Nadal. He's never won a set against Nadal. But, and he has a losing record to Ferrer, but he can beat Ferrer, and Ferrer is bound. It's got to be somewhat tired after playing into the finals in Paris, and now he's going to have to play Rafa tomorrow. So it looks, it does look good for Stan, and you know, it just shows maybe this is the most extreme case of a of a player's career, you know, almost beginning yeah, in, his, like, in his late twenties. You know, like tennis life begins at twenty eight. Now, Wawrinka seems like he's this is his first Masters at twenty eight, and he could, only seems like he can get better at this point. It's been a theme for all of this year and in previous years leading up to it. So. Um, just Group B, the rest of it, as of right now, no matches have been played. That's going to change in about an hour. Um, Federer, Djokovic, Del Potro, the odd man outs, Gasquet, as you mentioned there. I mean, it, it's it's a pretty stiff. It's tough. He's six yeah. years six years after, you know, the first time in six years he's made this tournament, he gets Del Potro, Federer, and Djokovic. So I guess he's happy to be there. Yeah. Um, yeah any thought besides Djokovic as to the – you, if you want to pick between Roger or Del Potro, kind of where this where this all might shake out, your opinion? Yeah, it's tough. Del Potro and Federer um, split their split two three setters over the last two weeks. I mean, it's got to be a toss up. I think you look at maybe Federer has a slight advantage because of the the place where he's won before, and if he's really feeling like you know he's back, maybe that gives him a little momentum. This is a big tournament, I think, for Del Potro to. If, when he plays Federer, to try to put Federer behind him in a way, he'd until last week he'd won most of their recent matches, and I've, he's up to number five in the world. 
I feel like he's a guy who wants to wants to move on and not have Federer ahead of him in the in the general pecking order for the Grand Slams next year. So I think that's that's an, this is an important match. Their round robin match will be important. I don't. I would I would pick Federer. I think um, we'll see. You know, we'll see what happens. So I I would I would probably take Djokovic and Federer to come out of that. Mm-hmm. Um. We will catch up on this next week on the podcast. This is Monday final, actually. Monday start and Monday final for the ATP World Tour finals. We'll come back next week, talk about what happened in London. Also look ahead to the Davis Cup final, which uh, Richard Pagliaro will be heading to for us. We'll get him in the pod as well. That is featuring Djokovic and uh, Burdich as well. So some of these guys actually not even done after this week. Um So we'll catch up on all that on the next podcast, Tennis.com. Thanks for listening. You've been enjoying Tennis.com's weekly podcast. Thanks for listening. For all the latest news and events, head over to Tennis.com.